You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. In today's episode, we will be discussing the gut microbiome brain axis and how it affects different aspects of our health and well being. So, throughout this episode, I'll highlight some pearls of wisdom from scientific research that support this inextricable connection between our guts and our brains on an emotional level and on a physiological level. And I'll also weave in some key principles and strategies drawn from both East. Eastern and Western medicine, as well as scientific research, for taking care of this gut microbiome axis so that we can promote longevity as well as holistic wellness and healing. We'll also close with a brief mindfulness practice intended to help us ground before and or after meals to enhance our ability to digest and process what we are eating and to be more aware of the energy and the emotions and the mindset and thoughts that we may be bringing into our meal times that could somehow interfere with our digestion and our processing. Even though our focus today will be on the microbiome, I want to take a minute to highlight how the microbiome operates within this broader system in our body that works to boost the body's healing capacities. And the microbiome is one of five natural defense systems in the body that are all impacted by the foods we eat and how we are able to digest and process those foods. Dr. William Lee, who is a world-renowned physician, speaker, scientist, and author, talks about these five systems in his book, Eat to Beat Disease, which I highly recommend. And his work, his research, has affected the treatment of more than 70 diseases. He's published over 100 scientific publications in leading journals and has also served on the faculty of various medical schools at Harvard, Tufts, and Dartmouth. And so his wisdom is really quite meaningful and has really shaped our understanding of not only the microbiome, but these other natural defense systems in the body. So the first or one of these systems is angiogenesis and angiogenesis involves the formation of blood vessels in our bodies that carry oxygen and nutrients to all of the cells and organs in our bodies. And there are specific foods we can eat that can promote angiogenesis. The second natural defense system is regeneration. And regeneration is the process by which the stem cells in our bodies maintain, repair, and promote regeneration in our bodies. And again, there are some foods that can mobilize this regeneration process as well as kill deadly stem cells that are toxic and can spark cancer growth. 
We also have our DNA system, which is another natural defense system because it re has repair mechanisms that can protect us from damage in the environment. So this includes solar radiation, household chemicals. It can involve stress, compromised sleep, poor diet. So our DNA system has repair mechanisms that can help us be resilient in the face of some of these environmental stressors. There are certain foods, again, that we can eat to prompt DNA to fix itself, and some foods that can both turn on helpful genes and turn off harmful ones. And a lot of these repair mechanisms in our DNA system have been linked to slower aging processes. We also have an immunity response as another natural defense system in our body. And again, this is heavily influenced by our gut. There are certain foods that can activate this immune system and others that can dampen activities, which is particularly important for those of us who have autoimmune diseases. And when we eat certain foods, it can reduce symptoms of autoimmune diseases. And then finally, microbiome, the microbiome, which is our focus today. In our microbiome, we have at least 40 trillion bacteria. And these bacteria produce health-supporting metabolites from the foods that we eat and that get processed in the gut. And importantly, these bacteria don't just process our foods and derive these metabolites that support our health. These bacteria also control immunity influence angiogenesis and produce hormones that influence our brain and social functioning. And again, there are specific foods we can eat that can boost our microbiome, that can cultivate some diversity in our microbiome, that can promote health and longevity. So all of these systems are important and work together. And the microbiome in particular is also implicated in some of these other processes. So it's not to say that it's the most important, but it is to say that it is inextricably intertwined with all of these natural defense systems in our body. Another important piece of information to keep in mind is that our microbiome is implicated in this gut-brain connection. It's almost like this intermediary. And a lot of the research to date that has been conducted shows how our gut-brain connection is mediated or modulated in some kind of way through this microbiome pathway. So when we engage in activities that support the healthy functioning of our microbiome, we're not just supporting that natural defense system in the body in and of itself, we're also affecting these other systems, which is to say when we don't take care of our microbiome, we not only lose the power of the microbiome as a natural defense system on its own, we can also cause damage to the angiogenesis defense, we can disrupt stem cell functioning, we can make it harder for our body to protect its DNA, and we can also compromise our immune system. So tending to the microbiome is important in and of itself, as well as because of its impact on these other four systems. And so I think this is really important to 
keep in mind and to educate ourselves about. And I too am continually educating myself as research emerges because culturally we've been taught in the past several decades to think of the digestive system as a machine that processes food. And while that is one function of our digestive system, it's far from the complete picture of what our digestive system does. It is actually far more complicated than a pure machine. So you may be aware that the gut is the only organ other than the brain that has its own nervous system. And this is referred to as the enteric nervous system or the ENS. And in pop culture, you may have heard it referred to as the quote unquote second brain. So our gut system, our digestive system, is made up of as many nerve cells as our spinal cord. There's also more immune cells that reside in our gut lining than in the blood or the bone marrow. The gut also has more endocrine cells than all of the other endocrine organs combined in our body. And 95% of serotonin in our body is stored in the gut. And serotonin is a really important hormone that is essential for digestive functions, as well as regulating other important bodily functions like sleep, appetite, pain sensitivity, even mood and overall well-being. And our gut system, our digestive tract, is the largest sensory organ in our body. So if we unfurled our digestive system, it would take up the space of a basketball court. And throughout the landscape of that basketball court, there are thousands of sensors that take in important information and send signals to our brain about that sensory input. So I think it's important to just appreciate and have some awe about the digestive system because we've been so conditioned to think of it as this processing machine. And when we think about it as more of a processing machine, that is how we treat it. Whereas if we treat it as this incredible structure that is so interconnected with our health and well-being, we, that awe can translate into a reverence and a way in which we approach eating and our relationship to food and digestion and emotions much differently. Another important piece of research that I think is really important to this conversation is the extent to which the microbiome has been implicated in mental and physical health disorders. So this term called dysbiosis refers to a severe disturbance in our bacterial ecosystem. So essentially an imbalance of our gut bacteria. And dysbiosis has been linked to a variety of mental and physical health conditions, including anxiety and depression, as well as diabetes, obesity, autism, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel, irritable bowel syndrome, excuse me, cancer, asthma, psoriasis, MS, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, heart failure, celiac disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, schizophrenia. So really there are multiple bodies of research that support this connection between imbalances or disturbances in our microbiome and mental and physical health conditions. There's also some research that I recently learned about that shows that certain bacteria affect our responses to immunotherapy treatment for cancer. So what that means is that when we have certain bacteria present in our gut, 
our bodies are more able to call on our own immune systems to fight cancer, specifically in the context of this immunotherapy treatment. So our gut bacteria can really influence the effectiveness of some of the modern treatments that we have available. A final point I want to make in terms of research before we transition into talking a bit more about what we can do to promote the health of our microbiome, given what we know from research, comes from animal studies. And this animal study research shows that what we eat can actually lead to the extinction of certain important gut bacteria, which can affect the health of future generations. So this research really highlights how some bacteria are quite resilient and can bounce back from what has been termed dietary insults, which is to say eating foods that don't support functioning of the microbiome. And we'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about the kinds of foods that, that can support functioning of the microbiome. But when there is a certain period of time over which that kind of diet that does not support the microbiome is eaten, some healthy bacteria are able to recover and bounce back and others can't. And this can leave sort of a scar on the microbiome. This is how Dr. Lee refers to it, a scar on the microbiome. So in this research, it has been suggested that only 30% of bacteria can recover and return to their baseline state before this kind of diet that doesn't promote health is engaged in. And research in these animal studies has also shown that when there are generations that eat a high fat, low fiber diet, it actually can kill off healthy gut microbes permanently, such that it cannot be generated. Those healthy gut microbes will not return even when more of a plant-based diet or a low-fat, high-fiber diet is introduced. So this goes against a lot of what I tend to talk about, as you all know, which is plasticity and resiliency and our ability to recover, that I think it's important to sit with the fact that there are certain ways in which our system is not resilient and which we can cause permanent damage, not just for ourselves, but future generations. And in fact, this research shows that by the fourth generation of eating this high fat, low fiber diet, 72% of the microbes from that initial first generation that were healthy were no longer detectable. So again, this isn't meant to cause guilt and shame for our eating habits, but just to really sit with the fact that there are ripple effects, there are repercussions when we are not tending to this system in our body and, and treating it with, with reverence. For me personally, knowing this research is really helpful because it gives me even more incentive and motivation to engage in a lifestyle that can really support the health of my microbiome and help me tend to this gut microbiome brain axis. I know that it's important for promoting natural defense systems in my body. I know that it's important for my own mental and physical health and well-being. I know that it's important for future generations that follow me. So all of these reasons 
friends can help me stay committed and motivated to engage in a lifestyle that does support the health of the gut-brain axis when it's hard because it can be hard in our modern culture to engage in the kinds of activities and lifestyles that can promote the health of our digestive tracts and therefore this gut-brain connection. It's also important for me to share with you all at the outset that I am not here to prescribe a certain kind of program or regimen. For those of you who know me and my work, I am not a proponent of one-size-fits-all approaches. I think that approaches to growth and healing and change need to be personalized. They need to account for your history, your needs, your current life circumstances. And so all of these principles and strategies that I share are meant to be offerings, are meant to be invitations for you to reflect on, is that something that would be important for me to integrate into my life or not? Is that something that that isn't relevant to me? So I encourage you to get curious as I share some of these principles and strategies to see what makes sense for you, what honors your unique needs, your history, your relationship to food. So I, I do want you to walk away from today with some ideas about new strategies, new tools that you can implement. But again, I don't want you to feel like you need to blanketly take everything that I share and implement it because for a variety of reasons, certain strategies may not make sense for you or may not apply to you. So with that being said, the first key principle that I want to share with you is being mindful of what you are putting in your body. So that may sound simple, but again, if we are treating our bodies as machines and just kind of like filling up a gas tank and treating, you know, all gas as one and the same, we're not tending to our systems in the ways that they need. So some core elements that have been highlighted by research include the importance of dietary fiber. So eating as much dietary fiber in your diet as possible from whole foods. And the reason for this is that when we eat dietary fiber from whole foods, gut bacteria can then create certain metabolites that have a variety of important functions. These metabolites can reduce inflammation, they can help regulate blood sugar and cholesterol, and they can also improve immunity. So diets high in fiber from whole foods can really support our microbiome. Another, again, piece of recommendation I can offer that comes from research is minimizing animal protein. Again, this is where personalization comes into play because maybe you already don't eat very much animal protein and eating less would actually not be great for your body because you wouldn't have enough protein. But the reason that we don't want to eat a ton of animal protein for most of us, again, again, this may not apply to you, is that lots of animal protein is hard on the microbiome. It can cause more inflammation in the gut. Another core element that comes from research is the importance of eating fewer processed foods. And this is because processed foods tend to have certain additives and preservatives and flavors that can really interfere with this balance in the microbiome. One 
piece that I want to highlight in particular is the harm that is caused by artificial sweeteners. So artificial sweeteners can change the microbiome in really profound ways, so much so that it can result in, or intake of artificial sweeteners can result in glucose intolerance and blood sugar and can affect blood sugar metabolism in the body. And some research actually shows that when we eat or use artificial sweeteners, the gut microbes will actually harvest proportionally more calories from the foods that we eat. So even though many people use artificial sweeteners so they can reduce caloric intake, ultimately they don't necessarily have that impact of reduced caloric intake and more importantly, cause these harmful shifts in the microbiome. So those are the top three recommendations that come from scientific research. Increasing dietary fiber from whole foods, eating less animal protein, and less processed foods. Another recommendation that comes from research is making sure that we have a diverse array of bacteria in our guts through eating both probiotics and prebiotics. So probiotics are living strains of bacteria that add to the population of good bacteria in our digestive system. So we are basically eating foods that contain bacteria. These are probiotics. And this dates back to centuries in ancient societies in Greece and Rome and China and India people were eating bacteria. So this is this ancient wisdom here in as well as modern science coming together. Prebiotics, on the other hand, are specialized forms of plant fiber that act as food for good bacteria. And so these tend to be, or they are, non-digestible and resistant to breakdown by stomach acid and enzymes in the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract. They are selectively fermented by intestinal microorganisms, and they selectively target and stimulate the growth and activity of beneficial bacteria. So because they're resistant to breakdown, by stomach acid and enzymes in our gastrointestinal tract, they make their way through the tract in, in different ways. So eating foods that contain bacteria, again, this is where personalization comes into play and eating foods that you actually like. But most probiotic foods that contain bacteria come from fermented foods. So this could involve sauerkraut, kimchi, which is a spicy fermented combination of veggies and Korean cuisine, pao sai, which is a fermented Chinese combination of vegetables, certain cheeses like Parmigiano Reggiano, Gouda, and Camembert are all three that have been shown in research to have good bacteria yogurt, sourdough bread, and kombucha. You can of course take probiotic supplements, but research has shown that food sources offer a more diverse array of bacteria, of this good bacteria than probiotic supplements. And there's also some mixed research in terms of different probiotics and which are more helpful. So again, the goal is to add as much good bacteria to our digestive tract as possible through the foods that we eat. 
Prebiotic foods that feed that good bacteria are also important to eat. And so again, there are so many different foods we could name here, but I'll just highlight a few. So certain fruits that are prebiotic include kiwi, mango, peaches, apricots, and cherries. The brassica family of vegetables have also been shown to decrease harmful bacteria in your gut. So this includes vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, bok choy, cabbage, kale, rutabagas, turnips, and even arugula. Pumpernickel bread is another probiotic, excuse me, prebiotic food, and it has been shown to reduce toxin-generating bacteria in our guts. Cacao is also a prebiotic food, and I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about cacao because I love chocolate, and so I love sharing about the health benefits of cacao. Certainly many people add cacao to baking, they add cacao, pure cacao powder to smoothies, but if you are intaking cacao in the form of chocolate to get the maximum benefit, you would focus on chocolate that has a greater percentage of cacao with minimal sugar and potentially not having dairy. But either way, cacao is hugely beneficial. It protects DNA and lowers risk of heart disease and diabetes. It improves gut bacteria. It can increase stem cells and improve blood flow. It actually has the power to switch cells in our immune system. I think this is incredible. From a pro-inflammatory state to an anti-inflammatory state. So it can shift the function of cells, which I think is pretty incredible. It also has both angiogenic and stem cell stimulating benefits. So essentially, it has so many functions in addition to boosting good bacteria and controlling bad bacteria. And interestingly, it can also help with disruptions due to chronic stress. So in research studies that have focused on humans with high levels of anxiety, cacao has been shown to reduce stress markers. And these include levels of cortisol and adrenaline. So basically stress hormones in the body can be reduced through regular intake of cacao. So cacao, an important prebiotic food. Other prebiotic foods include beans, specifically chickpeas, lentils, black beans, and navy beans. Also mushrooms like shiitakes, lion's mane, and white button mushrooms. Walnuts are another key prebiotic food. And certain teas, specifically oolong, black, and green teas. And certain juices like cranberry and Concord grape juices. So again, I'm not here saying that prescriptively you need to eat these foods. I'm, I'm trying to offer some examples of both probiotic and prebiotic foods so you can begin thinking about your current diet and, and the, the balance that you have of prebiotic and probiotic foods and ways in which you may be able to integrate more foods that you like to promote this balance of our gut ecosystem. So with that being said, the second principle I want to highlight, which is something I've already talked about so far, is the sea principle. So S-E-A, like the ocean. And for me, I like acronyms because it helps me remember things in a concise way. So this may or may not be helpful to you as well. But C stands for sustainable, enjoyable, and adaptable. So 
for these recommendations, as I said at the beginning, the goal is really to personalize them, to make them your own, to figure out what is sustainable, what works in your life, and what is something that you can sustain long term. So really thinking about supporting our microbiome and this gut microbiome brain axis in a long-term way thinking of it as a marathon rather than a sprint it's not a diet fad it's it's not something that you want to dip your toe in so really thinking about over the course of my days my weeks my months what is a lifestyle shift that i can integrate that is sustainable so sustainability is key and then e stands for enjoyable so what can i do that i actually will have a source of pleasure in what are foods i can integrate that i actually find delicious that i can savor Um, it's hard to stick to things that are unpleasant and so i really do think it's important to do what we can to find joy in the choices that we're making in terms of mindfulness related to what we're putting in our bodies again i recognize that many of us have histories of eating disorders have difficult relationships with food and so for some of us this may be more challenging than others but when we can finding supports whether that's through friendship through family through healers through therapists to help us shift our relationship to food and again treating this as a reverent way of taking care of ourselves and our bodies and our minds and our hearts rather than fueling a machine and a stands for adaptable so also being flexible and recognizing that your needs your lifestyle may evolve will evolve over time and so not rigidly adhering to some kind of strict plan because while in some ways that can be grounding and centering to have something very strict it can also set you up for a lot of guilt and shame and self-blame when you are not able to adhere to that because I think that for most of us, there are stressful periods of time that happen in life. There are circumstances that occur outside of our control that interfere with our plans, that interfere with our routines. And so we want to come up with systems that can be flexible and adaptable. So in terms of some tidbits that I can share in terms of sustainability, enjoyment, and adaptability, I think coming up with a system that feels like it honors and acknowledges the parameters of your life. So Dr. Lee in his book talks about a five by five by five system, which I'm not going to go into detail about, but the core of his system really highlights how most of us eat three meals and two snacks a day. Again, there's variability. Not everyone eats five times a day. But using that as a way to consider, you have five opportunities throughout your day, theoretically, to make certain choices that can support your microbiome and the system in your body. And so can you make a commitment to having at least one of those five opportunities be something that is very mindful and intentional? And so I think doing small changes at a time is often really helpful. So can you make a big tray of brassicas on Sunday, knowing that those are one of the core prebiotic foods that you can add to your lunch throughout the week? Or can you have a snack of the week or a snack of the month that maybe is something that you really like and enjoy, but is not something that you tend to integrate? Maybe it's some walnuts, maybe it's some certain fruits. And so again, having this be sustainable and making small changes at a time that feel possible within the real, realistic and real life parameters of your life. And also 
coming up with changes that you think you can sustain over time as opposed to just kind of white knuckling through it for a short period of time. Thinking of it as an investment in your long-term health. Another key piece that I think lends itself to this C principle, the sustainability, enjoyment, and adaptability, is trying to resist this categorical binary mindset of healthy versus unhealthy foods and choices. So when we create this binary of healthy versus unhealthy, good versus bad, it adds a layer of judgment to our lifestyle that we don't need. That is not helpful. So trying to shift mindset more towards being in partnership with our bacteria, that this is a reciprocal, inextricably intertwined relationship, that we nourish them just as they nourish us. If we feed them with what they need to do their job, we will get health benefits in return. And so thinking about what's going to be supportive, what's going to be helpful to allow them to do their job rather than what's unhealthy. So let's just take an example for a minute and say that you make a choice, a food choice, and put something in your body that does not support your microbiome. If you think about it as that was an unhealthy choice, that then creates a certain emotional charge over your choice, which can lead to a lot of different outcomes that might cascade into more choices that don't support your microbiome. So you might feel guilty, you might feel ashamed, you might be contending with self-critical thoughts. And so all of these together will probably take you further away from continuing to get back on the horse, so to speak, and make choices that are more aligned with support of your microbiome. Whereas if you're able to just name, oh, I made a choice about something that didn't support my microbiome, there's less emotional charge there, there's less judgment, which may allow you to more easily make a different choice at the next opportunity or recommit to why you are even making these choices or trying to make different choices in the first place. There's more space to respond effectively to make a different choice when you're not also dealing with that layer of judgment on top of it. So you may be more able to forgive yourself from a perceived mistake. You may be more able to recover and make a different choice at the next opportunity when you're not labeling your choices with so much judgment when you're thinking about ways to enhance the support you're giving to your system rather than saying that's unhealthy and potentially getting caught in a cycle of self-criticism and shame and self-blame and guilt. And finally, the A, the adaptability piece of this C principle, recognizing that there may be certain times, whether it's times of day or going certain places, where it may be difficult to make the choices that are aligned with your desire to support your microbiome. So there may be a need to plan ahead, to bring certain foods with you, to do some research in advance, to see what's available. There may also be some balancing that you do. So for example, if I just went on a course of antibiotics that I really needed that threw off my digestive tract, or if I engaged in a few weeks of stress eating that did not promote my microbiome optimally, I may then try to recommit to a certain period of time of eating more of certain foods and less of certain foods. So almost like a digestive reset or a, a recommitment, a, a rebalancing. Or if I know that I'm going to be traveling to a place where certain foods may not be available, 
perhaps I am mindful of what I am eating and how I am interacting with my digestive system for a period of time leading up to that trip. So we need to be flexible. We need to be kind to ourselves, realistic about the circumstances of our lives. And that warrants some flexibility and adaptability to the changing circumstances and sometimes some planning and some forethought. And again, even though there is research that shows that when we engage in certain diets for a prolonged period of time, it can cause some unrecoverable damage to or irreversible damage to our systems, that doesn't mean that one choice defines us or several choices define us. We're sort of thinking about this over time. And so I think it's important to also forgive ourselves when we make choices that are not as supportive as they could be. Now that we've spent some time talking about the importance of being mindful of what we are putting in our bodies and this C principle of sustainability, enjoyment, and adaptability, I want to transition into highlighting our third principle or focus for today, which is the crucial piece of managing our stress and tending to our emotions, specifically given the bi-directional communication that is happening between our guts and our brains. Of course, many people likely will agree that stress management and tending to our emotions is important for our well-being, but I want to spend some time specifically talking about why it is important from the perspective of, of this gut microbiome brain axis. So the way in which the gut and brain communicate is extremely complicated. And so I'm not going to get into the weeds of it today, but I do think it is important for you to know that there are very intricate neuronal pathways that facilitate communication between the gut and the brain, as well as more subtle, small molecule messaging systems. And that the gut and the brain communicate through the immune system, through the vagus nerve, through nerves in this enteric nervous system, through hormones, and through inflammatory molecules. So there are all sorts of mechanisms, which are beyond the scope of our conversation today, that facilitate this communication between the gut and the brain. Before I share more, I want to take a minute to lift up and acknowledge the work of Dr. Emerin Mayer, who wrote a really wonderful book called The Mind-Gut Connection, which I highly recommend. And Dr. Mayer is considered a pioneer in the area of brain-gut microbiome interactions. So he has studied brain-body interactions for at least 40 years. He's a gastroenterologist, a lecturer, an author, an editor, a neuroscientist. He's even filmed documentaries and been a professor in departments of medicine at UCLA. And so I do find his work really valuable in terms of the extent to which it has facilitated our understanding of this bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain. And I think the subtitle of his book really highlights this, which is how the hidden conversation within our bodies impacts our mood, our choices, and our overall health. So I'll be referencing some of his work today as we continue this conversation. So many of you have probably heard of the gut being referred to as a quote-unquote second brain. So we've already talked a bit about the enteric nervous system of the gut and how it's the only other organ 
in the body other than than the brain that has its own nervous system. And in his book, Dr. Mayer highlights the work of another scientist, an anatomist and cell biologist who at the time was at Columbia University when Dr. Mayer's book was published. And that scientist is Michael Gershon. And his book, The Second Brain, focuses on the gut and the serotonin system of the gut. And he has a video of an experiment in which a guinea pig intestine is in a bath of fluid. And the intestine propels a plastic pellet from one side of the intestine to the other without any connection to the brain. So this intestine is disembodied, so to speak. It's in this bath of fluid by itself and yet still has the ability to physically move this plastic pellet to propel it, in fact. And so there is some suggestion that the human brain and the human gut may operate similarly in terms of this independence, that our enteric nervous system in our gut doesn't need the brain to operate, which I think is really kind of mind-blowing and powerful. So the message here is that this research on the connection between the gut and the brain and this bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain is so intertwined and connected interconnected. What happens in our gut affects our brain and what happens in our brain affects our gut. So our gut is responsible for interpreting really rich sensory information and rich sensory information that is generated in the gut then reaches the brain. So gut sensations like butterflies, like feeling as though our stomach is in knots, is then sent to the brain via the vagus nerve and the bloodstream. And the brain then processes that raw data in the insular cortex, a part of the brain that processes that raw data and integrates it with other brain systems. So eventually, those initial gut sensations, those butterflies, those knotted stomachs, result in a sort of gut feeling because the brain integrates those gut sensations with other influences like our learned experience, our history, our memories, our emotions. So this is just another example of the ways in which the brain and the gut are really intertwined. Because of the bi-directional communication, when we have a gut feeling, that is the result of this communication between the gut and the brain. And these gut feelings, as many of us know often drive our behavior and our decision making. And again, as you recall from the beginning of our time together today, I talked about the digestive tract as being the largest sensory organ in our body. It's the size of a basketball court if it's unfurled. And so you can imagine a basketball court sized space with lots and lots of sensors. And so those sensors are again, generating certain or interpreting sensory information like these gut sensations and sending them to the brain for processing. So what this means for us is that one way in which we can really support this gut-brain connection and the health of our system is to learn to both read these gut feelings 
and respond accordingly. And so there are a variety of ways in which we can enhance our, what is referred to as interoceptive awareness, our ability to interpret and respond to bodily sensations. There are also ways in which we can more easily or more readily respond to these quote unquote gut feelings that are more, more of this integration of raw sensory data and life experience and memory and emotion. And one key strategy that I think is really profound in facilitating our ability to read these cues and to respond accordingly in a way that is consistent with our values and aligned with our needs and desires and goals in life is mindfulness practice. And this is something, this skill is something that can be cultivated through time with mindfulness practice. So on one level, being able to register and interpret and notice sensations in our gut can be really helpful from a physical perspective. It can be really helpful in knowing which foods do and do not sit well with us in knowing the extent to which we are digesting something effectively and when we might need to call in additional supports to promote more effective digestion. It can also be helpful in more of an emotional way to get a sense of what our gut is telling us about our internal and external environment. So when we are experiencing a sensation in our gut, what is that telling us about the cues in our environment? Are we feeling safe? Is there a certain emotional charge that we need to pay attention to? And what is happening outside of us that is causing some kind of sensation in our gut? So essentially, these gut sensations are important messages about our physical and mental health and well-being. And yet we do oftentimes need to train ourselves to notice them and interpret them and respond to them because it often isn't something that most of us are trained to do. Another area of research which I think is really relevant to this conversation is research that shows that the limbic system generates nerve signals that express our emotions differentially in the digestive tract. So this limbic system is the same part of our nervous system that generates signals to facial muscles that are associated with certain emotions. So essentially it controls our facial expressions when we feel angry or sad or frustrated or happy. And this same system is responsible for generating nerve signals to our digestive tract. So we know that with anger, our stomach contracts to produce acid and also slows emptying of its contents while the intestines generate additional digestive juices. So that is an expression of emotion that happens in the digestive tract. With fear, there's a different profile. So when we experience fear, stomach contractions decrease, but contractions of the intestines increase. And with sadness, we have a decrease in contractions of both the stomach and the intestines. So essentially, when we experience an emotion, that emotion results in certain facial expressions and gestures, as well as certain changes in our digestive tract. And so the reason that this research is relevant, I think, is because these emotional responses that occur in our guts are often more invisible. We're not necessarily able to notice them as well because they may be more subtle than things like a racing heart and a flushed face and some trembling in our voice. But to recognize that emotions, as we know, are multidimensional, so much so that they cause physiological changes in our digestive processes, 
helps us then determine how we can promote digestion and optimal functioning of our digestive systems. So again, when we are experiencing intense emotion, we can support our systems by potentially not eating in that moment and instead focusing on regulating that emotion first and doing what needs to be done to tend to and process that emotion before focusing on eating. And as I mentioned previously, there may be some additional complexities here for those of us who have complex relationships to food, eating, our bodies, including a history of eating disorders or a current struggle with eating disorders. So the key principle to keep in mind here is that when there is a high emotional charge around eating, it can interfere with our literal digestive digestive processes. And so oftentimes there needs to be some kind of tool or strategy in place to help us manage our emotions so we can also get our maximal nutritional intake. In addition to being mindful of our emotional state around food and eating, it's also important to be aware of where we fall in terms of stress response. So there is a hormone called corticotropin releasing factor, which sets the body's coordinated stress response in motion. And corticotropin releasing factor is associated with increases of two hormones, norepinephrine and cortisol. And it also stimulates a stress-induced gut reaction that impacts the composition and acidity of the gut microbiome. So for those of us who have experienced high stress before, we may have noticed an impact on our gastrointestinal system in the form of severe abdominal pain, more contractions that have resulted in diarrhea, the stomach slowing down and Sometimes it can even reverse itself to empty its contents upwards, so there can be some reflux. The gut wall can become leakier. The colon can secrete more water and mucus. The amount of blood flowing through the lining of the stomach and intestines can increase. So our stress response also involves a stress-induced gut reaction. So because there is such a relationship between our stress level and our gut, we also need to be managing stress, again, not just for the sake of our own emotional health and well-being, but for the sake of our physical health and well-being. And this reminds me of one of my Ayurvedic mentors, Dr. Bharat Vadya, who often says, it doesn't matter what you eat if you can't digest it. And so that leads me to our fourth and final principle for today, which is focused on the promotion of digestion. And so Ayurveda, as you might recall from a prior podcast episode, is translated as the science of life or the wisdom and knowledge of life. And Ayurveda is one of the most ancient and comprehensive medical sciences. It's thought to be over 5,000 years old, and it comes from India and is a holistic system that addresses harmony and balance in mind, body, and spirit through different pathways. One is through ahara or food and nutrition. One is through vihara, which is physical activities. A third is vichara, which is mental or mind-body activities like meditation and breath work or pranayama and mantra and sound practices. And dinacharya, which is daily ritual and routine, which can also be related to seasonal ritual and routine. And so I want to lift up some Ayurvedic recommendations of digestion because I think they support beautifully some of the wisdom that I've already shared today. So when our 
nutrients, when our foods are not digested in an efficient way, even the healthiest foods that we put into our body can turn into an accumulation of toxins or in Ayurvedic medicine, what is referred to as AMA. And in Ayurvedic medicine, we talk about accumulation of AMA in the absence of sufficient processing and digestion as both physical and mental. So when you cannot process foods, you also can't process emotional experiences. Again, because this gut brain connection is so profound and so inextricably intertwined, it's not just about not being able to process your foods and absorb the nutrients from the foods you're putting into your body. It's also about being able to process your emotions and be with your emotional experience. So in Ayurvedic medicine, we talk a lot about eating nutrient-dense foods, promoting digestion, and enriching foods with a variety of tastes or flavors. So that includes sweet, sour, salty, pungent, bitter, and astringent. And so making sure all six tastes or rasas, as they're referred to in Ayurveda, are present in as many meals as possible because that also promotes digestion. And we also talk about things that increase appetite and digestive power, like Agni kindlers. And Agni kindlers, you can think about as stoking the fire of the digestive system. So for many of us, this can take the form of digestive enzymes for people who have weaker digestive systems because organs have been removed or they just tend to have less digestive fire. It can also be in the form of taking certain spices or supplements 10 minutes before meals or making sure that these spices are incorporated into your meal itself. And certain spices that have been shown to promote digestive power or kindle the agni or the digestive fire are spices like ginger, garlic, cumin, cinnamon, coriander, both fresh coriander, cilantro, and dried, cardamom, clove, black pepper, hing is another spice that can really be helpful for digestion, haleem or garden cress, fenugreek, dates, black pepper, and fennel. So those are some to keep in mind. Some other tips that Ayurveda shares include eating food at room temperature or warmer. So trying to stay away from colder or frozen foods if you are trying to promote digestion. And trying not to drink during meals. And if you do need to drink, taking small sips of warm water. Of course, chewing food slowly and mindfully, being aware of overeating and really catering your meal size to your appetite. And so being aware of signs of hunger and satiety. Also, this can involve eating your largest meal between 10 and 2 because that's the time where the digestive power is thought to be the strongest. Oftentimes, being in a relaxed state emotionally and physically, staying seated, avoiding multitasking, avoiding multitasking, avoiding discussion of upsetting topics can also be really helpful in promoting digestion. In Ayurveda, there is often a recommendation to take 100 steps after a meal to support digestion, as well as taking time to engage in some kind of quiet or mindfulness practice before the meal to 
create a certain transition or segue into the meal to almost remind the body that it's time for it to do its work. And similarly to have space between meals and other activities like sleep and exercise and meditation so the body can really focus on its job of digestion without layering on the demands of other activities. So of course this is a very brief version of a very complex and wonderfully useful medical system, but I did want to share just a few tips from that system. Before I offer a summary of the key points we've discussed today, I want to offer a brief mindfulness practice, which can be used to help ground yourself before and or after meals and become more aware of what is present in your inner landscape with the goal of enhancing your ability to digest and process what you are eating and putting in your body. So I'll invite you to take whatever position feels most comfortable for you in this moment. It could be seated, lying down, or standing. And you can choose to either keep eyes open, gently focused in a downward gaze, or shut. And begin by taking, as feels right to you, a few deep breaths into your belly. So really widening, expanding all 360 degrees of your abdomen, expanding your rib cage and your upper chest, and gently exhaling out. Inhaling through the nose, expanding belly, side ribs and chest and slowly and smoothly letting it out. So taking a few more breaths on your own, being aware of the sensations in your body, how your body is responding to the breath. And how the breath is nourishing your body. Noticing the rhythm and the pace. And see if you can focus your attention now on other parts of your body. Gently scanning from the top of your head down to your toes, noting areas of tension and seeing if you can gently soften, bring a sense of calm or release to those areas where there are tension, maybe the forehead jaw, neck and shoulders. You could invite some relaxation or some tension release by deepening the breath and imagining sending the breath into that area or maybe even bringing in some movement, gently rolling the shoulders or bringing your chin to your chest and circling your head. Maybe noticing your arms your back body, your belly. Your hips, and pelvis. Your glutes. And your upper legs, knees, lower legs. And all parts of your feet, your heels, the arches, the toes. So you can go through the body in a more organized way from head to toes or toes to head, or you can choose to have it be more organic. 
and just let your attention gravitate towards the parts of your body that feel most tense right now or have other sensations that feel most loud or salient. And see if you can take a moment to notice what emotions may be present for you. There may be specific emotions that come to mind, maybe categories of feeling neutral or agitated or calm. What are you feeling in this moment? And what message might that emotion be trying to convey? What purpose might it be serving? What is underlying that emotion? And noticing any thoughts. Is your mind circling around a certain thought pattern or belief or story? Does your mind feel very active? So it could be specific thoughts. It could also be more of the energy or the activity of your mind. The pace of it. And again, all of these physical sensations and emotions and thought patterns are not necessarily good or bad. They all belong. They're all here for a reason. So we're not here to judge or push away or even cling to anything that we notice, but to just become more aware of what we are bringing to this meal. And if there's anything that we need to tend to before we engage in eating to help us really honor the wisdom of our body and our mind or our body mind or our body heart mind. Is there something that needs to be tended to first that needs to be nourished? Is there some need that needs to get met that these emotions and physical sensations and thoughts are trying to communicate. How can we listen? And so we'll close by one more final deep breath in and releasing it out. And so of course, this is a mindfulness practice that you can return to again and again as you find helpful. And before we close, I just want to summarize briefly what we've highlighted today. So the first key principle that we focused on was being mindful of what we're putting in our body. So specifically making sure that we are eating as much dietary fiber from whole foods as possible and that we are being mindful of the animal protein and processed foods in terms of amounts that we are intaking. 
as well as the extent to which we are taking in artificial sweeteners. And we also talked about the balance of probiotic and prebiotic foods and being intentional about food choices and integrating each of those into our diets as much as we can. The second principle we focused on was the C principle of sustainability, enjoyment, and adaptability. And the third was managing our stress and tending to our emotions for the sake of promoting the health of this gut microbiome brain axis. And so this management of stress and tending to emotions involves developing and enhancing our capacity to read cues from our gut, to interpret sensations in our gut, given the impact that these gut sensations and gut feelings can have on our emotional landscapes and our decision making. Another key piece is becoming more aware of the relationship between our emotions and our digestive processes so that we can be more intentional about the choices that we're making in terms of foods and ways in which we are transitioning into mealtimes. And of course, we also talked about engaging in more regular stress management given the ways in which our stress response has an impact on our gastrointestinal tract and its processes. And the fourth and final principle that we talked about were Ayurvedic strategies for promoting digestion, including mindful eating, so eating more slowly, being mindful of chewing, really savoring sensations and tastes, and avoiding multitasking, eating, sitting down. We also talked about transitions into eating, having our largest meal be midday, being mindful of portions, walking after meals, and also talked about ways of promoting our digestive fire or our agni through digestive enzymes, through certain herbs and spices. I really hope you walk away from our conversation today with a sense of empowerment and curiosity and willingness to focus on the areas of your life in which you feel as though you are really working hard to support the optimal functioning of this gut microbiome brain axis and ways in which there may be more room for growth and change. So as always, thank you all so much for taking the time to join me for this important conversation this week. And I really look forward to you joining me again soon. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.